Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books and Jewish Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Matthew Miller, the host of the channel. Today, we'll be talking to Susan Weingarten about her new book, Haroset, A Taste of Jewish History, published by Toby Press in 2019. While every culture's cuisine tells a story, there are few foods that carry as much history and meaning as do those on the Passover Seder plate. Haroset, A Taste of Jewish History, is the first book ever written about this traditional Passover Seder food. In a captivating historical journey, Food historian Dr. Susan Weingarten traces the development of this ancient dish through a tapestry of social, religious, and cultural contexts. Susan, welcome to the show. Thank you. Nice to meet you, Matthew. I wonder if you can begin the interview by telling us a little bit about yourself. Okay. Well, I was born in England, and I was actually in England during the Six-Day War. And when I heard that Jerusalem is in our hands on the radio, I thought, well, it's ridiculous to be in England. And it took a few years. And we came to Israel about 50 years ago now. This year it'll be 50 years. Um, I at present live in Jerusalem. I lived in Tzfat for a bit. Um, I've got five children and I think 16 grandchildren, Um, and I'm a food historian. I originally wrote my doctorate on St. Jerome um, about what he could tell us about the Holy Land in the 4th century, but I got a bit tired of ascetic Christianity, so I moved on to Jewish food. And since then, I've been working on food, mostly in Talmudic sources. Uh, But when it came to Choroset, I wrote a paper about it for a conference. And then I wrote another paper. And when I came to writing a third paper, my husband said to me, well, it's about time you wrote a book. So it turned into a book. And, And here we are at the book. What were the things that you had in the paper? And then what were the different things that you needed to add and think about as you came to turn a paper into a book? Um, well, the papers, the first paper was about Haroset and authenticity. What's authentic and what isn't authentic? And it was at this point that I saw the great changes that have occurred in Haroset over the ages and how, yes, different sorts of Haroset are all authentic. Um, and then I wrote another paper on the connection between Haroset and the blood libels. Um, Normally, uh, we associate blood libels libels with the dreadful accusations against Jews in the Middle Ages in Europe that they baked their matzah with Christian blood. Um, Matzah doesn't look like something that's been baked with blood, but Haroset, when it's made with red wine, um, could be. And there were, in fact, dreadful accusations of um, of blood libels. And actually, the ones that, that uh, concerned Haroset turned out okay. Um, 
because the French king in question um, was very fair, and at the trial he he agreed that the Jewish evidence um, held water, and he didn't didn't kill the Jews. I think that unfortunately the the person that was accused at the time uh, died of the torture, but the whole community wasn't decimated. Um, and turning from this very fraught and difficult subject, um, finally, I actually managed to discover what the Greeks called haroset, what the Greek name for haroset was. Um, and therefore, when haroset might have begun and what its origins were. If it's got a Greek name, you know, its origins are likely to be in, in, uh, in um, Greco-Roman Palestine, in other words, around the time of uh, the Second Temple. Uh, and so it was these three papers from different aspects of Horoset that um, meant that I decided to take everything right from what I saw as the beginning and work all the way through history because it's a relatively restricted subject. It's not, not something absolutely huge and therefore you can go through the whole of history, um, everything that ever was written or everything that I could find that was ever written. That I'm still finding things that aren't in the book, right? Um, and I sit there in a file on my computer called Second Edition. Uh, but um, yeah, that, that's basically the, the way it was. And I think before we continue the interview and discuss different chapters, more of the history, maybe we'll start from the beginning and you can give us a definition. What exactly is haroset? What does the term mean? Uh, what the, the, well, that's a very good question because that's, it's not 100% clear at all. Probably, I think, the word haroset is related to the word for a piece of pottery, cheres, cheres and haroset. And there are people that do sit that, that say this, but not everybody agrees with them. Um, haroset is some is something that was um, there to represent um, the clay that the Jews made the bricks for in Egypt when when Pharaoh. Um, um, <laughs> was persecuting the Jews, one of the things he wanted them to do was to make bricks. And they they worked very hard with the clay. And Haroset is, is in memory of the clay. It has the, the memories of, of um, the Egyptian slavery, but also the memories of redemption. So it's, it's a very nice um, ambivalent symbol. Um, and when did it first appear on the Seder table? Uh, it's not that's not clear. We, the first time we ever hear about Haroset is in the Mishnah, and the Mishnah talks about um, the merchants in Jerusalem that used to um, tell people to get their spices for the Haroset, and they talk about Haroset as if it's something that everybody knows about, but. Of course, there's no explanation, certainly at that point. But the way I reconstruct it is, is this. Um, Jews 
uh, we're told in um, Sefer Shemot, in, in the book of Exodus, that um, the Jews are, are supposed to, at the point of redemption, at the very point that they're being redeemed from Egypt, what does God tell them to do? God tells them to eat. And he tells them, he tells them not only um, that they should eat, but what they should eat and what they should eat it with and how they should cook it. And he gives them a list of the foods that they're supposed to eat. They're supposed to eat the sacrificial paschal lamb. They're supposed to eat matzah and they're supposed to eat bitter herbs, but no mention of haroset. So haroset must have appeared on the table sometime between the, the um, exodus from Egypt and the Mishnah, which is a very long time span. Um, the way I look at it is, is this. Um, the bitter herbs were regarded by Greek and Roman doctors as something that was not good to eat, something that was bad for you. And they saw their Jewish neighbours sitting and at the, this most important meal um, eating these bitter herbs. And they said, listen, this is not good for you. And the Jews said, really? And they, so they said, yes, it, it's, it's something that's really um, bad for the body, but you can make it okay if you dip it in the right sort of stuff. So they said, why don't you dip it in this thing called embama? Now, how do we know that embama is haroset? Well, in the Cairo you know, the um, uh, collection of, of, of documents and so on that they found in, in an old synagogue in Cairo, some of which date back to as early as the 10th century. Um, in the Cairo they found a little bit of a, of a, of a, of a dictionary of the Mishnah where they take difficult words in the Mishnah and translate them into Greek. They actually, um, it's all written in Hebrew letters, but the language that they use is Greek. So they have um, one entry which says, Tribe um, uh, Embamo, and that's Pound Shafa Haroset the pounding haroset. And it's clear that the word that they're using for haroset is embama. Now, the word, the Greek word embama means a dip, something that you dip things into. And um, the, there actually is a recipe for embama. And in the only Greco-Roman cookery book that survived, which in its present form dates to the fourth century, but actually goes back to has material going back to the first century, and it says that lettuce and endives, and they used bitter lettuce in those days. They didn't didn't use um, uh, horseradish. They used bitter lettuce and endives as their bitter herbs. And they say lettuce and um, endives can be corrected by dipping into this embama or oxyporium. And they give a recipe for embama or oxyporium. And it contains things like dates, um, which 
we do find in Charoset, and it also contains um, some rather strange sort of spices, but um, some of them are found in different forms of Charoset, and anyway, spices do change. So there's this dip that people used to use to make the lettuce and the endives not harmful. Now, in the Babylonian Talmud, they, they talk about um, using charoset um, to counteract the kappa of the bitter herbs. And it's a bit unclear what kappa means. It's got various possibilities. It could mean the bad juices in the bitter herbs. It could also mean um, a demon. Now, the Babylonian um, Talmud is full of demons. It's one of the things that they like talking about quite often, and they go off into a spell against demons and so on, but then they come back to the idea of the, the juices in, in, the, um, in the bitter herbs. So both your Greco-Roman recipe and the Babylonian Talmud both say that um, charoset is a good thing against the against the bitterness, really, of the bitter herbs. And I think that this is how it appeared. Um, we know that after the temple was destroyed and the rabbis went to Yavne and decided how they're going to rebuild Judaism, one of the things they did was to move the celebration of Passover Pesach um, from Jerusalem into the home of every single Jew. And I think it must have been around that time that Haroset, um, which was on the table already, um, was given an okay by the rabbis. And, but, and it's also the reason why the rabbis are not 100% certain exactly um, exactly how to classify it. The suggestion that I can't remember who it is who gives it says that when we make a bracha um, over the lulav and the etrog and the hadas and the, and the um, aravot, um, we only make the bracha over the lulav and the other things are included with it. So perhaps it's the same with haroset. We make the bracha over maror and the haroset is included in it. And this, um, the Rambam also classifies it as what as a sort of second-class mitzvah. It's a mitzvah that belongs to the sofrim, to the scribes. Um, so, yeah, there, there's this whole thing about whether haroset is a mitzvah or not. Um, I suspect that if it is a mitzvah, that this is one of the reasons why you very often nowadays find men making haroset. Although usually it's the woman who does all these things, but if it's a mitzvah, perhaps it's too important to leave to a mere woman, and therefore you get men making making haroset. And um, I had a lot of people giving me wonderful descriptions of um, how their father-in-law found difficulty in peeling the apples, but he persisted because it was one of the things he had to do. Um, yeah. 
maybe we can back up a little bit. So we were speaking about the different sources that you're looking at for this particular research project. And you mentioned in general, one of the, the main resources that you're looking at is the Talmud. And then, of course, following up with different commentaries, etc. But thinking about the Talmud itself, were there any methodological issues that you had when looking at it, when using it as a source? Because of, although, of course, it contains historical material, it's not first and foremost, a, a history book as such. So how did you look at, how did you think about the Talmud as a source for your research? Well, generally, when I when I look at the Talmudic sources as a source for my research, and, and, and I do um, a lot of research on, to, on food in the Talmud, um, I generally, yes, don't regard it as... Uh, as somebody who's writing something to be history. Um, so you will get a lot of information about food in different sort of contexts. But here with Haroset, what we are interested in is the halacha. And the Talmud is totally concerned with the halacha and gives us all sorts of um, rules and regulations for things. Of course, we've no idea how how far people actually kept to these rules and regulations, but um, uh, we don't know very often whether the Talmud's being prescriptive or descriptive. Um, and what, And so one of the things that they are interested in is how Haroset was made and what it was made of, but they're also interested in what it symbolised, which is not really halacha, um, but it's one of the things that the rabbis are particularly interested in, um, the, uh, the, that the reason that you need to make Haroset, you're supposed to, the Talmud tells us, the Talmudim, tell us that haroset should be thick but then some people uh, disagree and say no it should be soft or runny Um, and they try um, it's clear that there's a disagreement here and that different people take take the different um, suggestions there's also a suggestion that it should be um, sour now, haroset nowadays is almost never sour. I don't know that I actually met anybody that has haroset that's totally sour, although I met somebody who said that in his childhood they used to make it sour. They used to use vinegar. Um, somebody from Gibraltar, um, and he said it was dreadful and really awful, and this was his father's minhag to put vinegar in the haroset, um, and luckily his mother's family had a different minhag and they went over to his mother's to his mother's custom rather than rather than rather than his um in fact the the vinegar in the haroset um and the apples which were sour apples originally and not sweet apples like we have them today you get in the Jerusalem Talmud a discussion of whether it should be thick or like clay or runny like blood and at a, the the Tosfot eventually come to the come to the idea that um, you can do both 
that you can make it thick at first and then you can add wine at the table so that it's runny and you do actually find pictures in the Middle Ages from Spain of Harosset in the form of little balls and clearly you can't dip into a little ball you have to add um, wine um, but there was a problem with the idea of the blood and you get um, the Taz, the Teresa have in the um, 17th century saying you shouldn't use red wine because it looks like blood. He'd lived through the Khelniki massacres and he realized that it was a dangerous thing. And, or, and today there are quite a lot of families who still... Um, who still have their thick haroset and then add wine at the table, but they're all Sfaradim. And it's the Sfaradim um, um, uh, were not the subjects of the blood libels usually. Um, and of course, everybody's gone back now to using red wine presumably because the memory of the blood and the memory of the blood libels has, has been lost. One of the things that I think about when I look at the book, and I think about the book, is the description on the top. It says, an intriguing exploration of one of the most mysterious symbolic Passover foods. We've touched on, on certain aspects of this, the food part, the symbolic part to some degree. But one of the things I want to pick up a little bit more on which we've addressed a little bit, is the mysterious aspect. So we've said that, is it a mitzvah? Is it not a mitzvah? Is there a blessing on it? Is there not a blessing? I think we've covered also some other aspects. From But from your perspective, what are some of these other mysterious aspects of the charosa that makes it a little bit difficult to understand? Um, that wasn't one of my... Um... <laughs> One of, one of the things that I would have written about it. I don't know that it's particularly mysterious. I think that, um, that there are a lot of questions, but as far as I could see, they could usually be answered. Um, I think that this, this is a bit of the blurb of the publisher that thought that people might be more excited if they read that it was mysterious. I don't know that I would say mysterious. I, I would say um, interesting and with a lot of questions around it, but an awful lot of those questions can be um, answered. Um, true, the, the name of Haroset is is still not totally clear to us, but I wouldn't call it exactly mysterious. Uh, perhaps unclear is a better is a better um, word, and uh, there are lots of things that you can clarify. Um, there are all sorts of strange customs, strange minhagim that um, turn up over the centuries. There's the one that I think the very first um, the first time that it's mentioned is it by the Shibuleha Leket in Italy, where they actually add a bit of um, uh, uh, what's the word? Um, a bit, a little, a little bit of grit to the haroset. Haroset's in the memory of clay, so you add a bit of pounded clay to your haroset. And you get the most wonderful reactions to this. Um, 
there I I I actually photographed and there's a photograph in the book of somebody who takes a hammer and takes a bit of pottery and bashes it up. He's always tells me he always boils the piece of pottery first to make sure it's clean. Um, and then he takes a hammer and bashes it and and pours the um, bits of grit into his harosset, not very much, so that you're most unlikely to um, get a bit between your teeth, but it's there. And it's there because of um, what appears to have been a misprint um, that um, you had in your in your um, manuscript or your book or, or whatever um, that you must pound the haroset. Now, if you leave the last letter of haroset, it says you must pound the cheres, and cheres is the potsherd. So, in other words, people went round pounding their potsherds because because of a misprint, and. There's actually um, one rabbi who says this and says that it's a misprint. And he says it's the most ridiculous idea that people won't give up this custom. He says it's absolutely crazy, this custom. And any minute they'll be doing even crazier things like uh, bloodletting on Purim or something. Uh, he says um, it's meant to be a memory of the clay, but not the clay itself. But people, um, it didn't help. Um he he's uh, it's the Chida, uh, Rabbi um, Chaim David Azulai, who says this and and uh, who cut, who who is violently against the minhag, but it didn't help because there are still people that do it to today, and you still find it written in mostly some of the older Haggadot. But I, I found a Haggadah from I think maybe maybe the nineteenth century where it was still written. Um, so yes, there are, but you can explain the whole of that strange happening. Um, whether that's mysterious and I've solved the mystery, I don't know. But uh, there are all sorts of um, little quirks that you come across on on um, on the way uh, for this. Um, the um, the non-religious kibbutzim. Uh, simply um, got rid of Haroset. And I went into this, I sat for a, um, a, a long time in the kibbutz. The, the kibbutzim have a, um, a historical archive with the Haggadot from every kibbutz. And kibbutzim used to write different a different um, Haggadah for each kibbutz had their own Haggadah. And they would simply cut out Haroset. And I think this was because um, the kibbutzim at the very beginning were very antagonistic to the um, the idea of the Jew that came from the shtetl in Eastern Europe and they wanted to, to produce a new type of Jew and they weren't going to have things that they couldn't really explain. They kept the matzah and they kept the wine and that was about it. Um, and you, the only mention of Haroset that I found in, in, in the archive, and I didn't go over all of it, but I went over quite a lot of, of the Haggadah, uh, apart from the religious kibbutzim, where obviously Haroset was just ordinary. Um, the only place where I found a mention of it was in 
was somewhere where they were historicizing it. it this is part of history. Once upon a time, people um, used charoset. I think also because it was made of expensive spices, it was a luxury. And kibbutzim were against luxury. They were, they were very ascetic at the very beginning. Um, and so, yeah, you, you can find the sources of an awful lot of the um, strange customs if you look hard enough, I think. Thank you for that. That, that was a great tour of some of the peculiarities and, uh, as I said, difficult to understand aspects of, of the harosa, but those which can be explained if one understands the history. I wanted to unpack two aspects, two other quirks that we had either touched on or have not yet touched on. One of them is the apple. So you mentioned tapuach is one of these items, a sour apple, which had been used, is also currently used in many recipes. I wanted to unpack that and discuss whether or not tapuach is in fact apple, or as you discussed in the book, could it in fact be a citron, or is that not a good reading of historical sources? <laughs> and then the, the other question I wanted to know about is the other thing that you talk about is haroset as a food item we've been talking about, but we haven't really said whether or not it's actually eaten. So those ah, two things right. are quirks, which I think right. could be helpful to unpack. Right. So um, I'll, if, if, you, if, if I may, I'll start with the is haroset eaten? So um, in, I mentioned already the fact that in the Babylonian Talmud, the, the, gen, the, the Talmud that we usually use, the Bavli, um, they talk about the fact that you shouldn't leave the bitter herbs for too long in the haroset because they might lose some of their bitterness. And therefore, there are some Jews, especially German Jews, the Yekin, um, uh, are so afraid that, the, 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 that there might be too long a contact between the bitter herbs and the haroset, and the bitter herbs might lose their bitterness. Um, that they simply dip the herbs into the haroset and then shake the haroset off and don't eat it at all. Um, so that, yes, is definitely one, one, one of the stranger minhagim that I found. I, 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 dis, I discovered it when I went to a family to talk to them about, about their haroset and I, and I asked um, uh, the father what what he put in his haroset and he said I don't know ask my wife and she said oh she said he always just dips the bitter herbs in and then shakes it off so I never waste my time making it I just buy it um so yeah that's that that's the um the the not using the haroset, whereas other families say, I have to make an enormous quantity because the children want to eat it for the whole week and they, that's what they spread on their matzah. Um, now, the apple is, is, is very interesting. The, you could, nowadays, haroset ha, has a geographical spread. Um, the Sephardi Jews base their haroset on um, dates. And that goes all the way back to Sadia Gaon and to the idea that um, haroset has to be thick. Um, Ashkenazi Jews base their haroset on apples because in the um, Babylonian Talmud, and Ashkenazim go for the Babylonian Talmud, it talks about um, uh, the haroset is 
in memory of the apple. Doesn't actually say the apple should be in Charoset, but it says in memory of the apple because apples are sour. In ancient times, apples were sour, much more sour than they are now. We've bred them to get sweeter and sweeter and sweeter um, over, over the years. And nowadays, it's almost impossible to find a sour apple. When I was a child in England, there were what were called cooking apples that were really sour. But nowadays, we, we, we only have sweet and sour apples. Um, <clears throat> And in the middle of this geographical spread of the, the Ashkenazi apples and the Sephardi dates, you have the, the Kharoset in the Balkans, in Greece and in Turkey, which is based on raisins. But you are interested in, in the apples, and the apples are very interesting. Um, as I say, they were originally there to add sourness, but then they got into the Kharoset themselves, because if they're there to add sourness, that, that, then, then they become an essential ingredient. And they're there because of a very beautiful midrash, which I call the Kharoset midrash, um, whereby um, when Pharaoh in Egypt, according to the text in Exodus, said that um, all Jewish boy babies should be killed, and but the girls can be left alive. Um, the um, Jewish couples in Egypt, according to the Midrash, separated from each other so that the women wouldn't get pregnant and so that they wouldn't have children who would be killed. Until, um, and the Midrash says it was Miriam, Moses's sister, said to her parents, listen, you're worse than Pharaoh. Pharaoh's only killing the, the, the boy babies, but you're making sure there'll be no girl babies either. So her parents went back together and the other Jewish women um, seduced their own husbands under the apple tree, according to the Midrash. And the women brought their husbands under the apple tree, brought them jugs of water, and God made a miracle whereby little fishes appeared in these jugs and they heated them up and they, they, ate, they ate fish as, as well under the apple tree. And then later, having got pregnant, they gave birth under the apple tree. And the Midrash is beautiful. The Midrash said, God said, sent an angel to them to be their midwife and to look after the women after they'd given birth so that Pharaoh wouldn't know that the, the, the babies had been born and that would perhaps save the, um, the boy babies. So this is seen as a Midrash of redemption and the... Um, continuity of the Jewish people, right? Also a midrash, I think, of, of, of uh, married love as well. The women seduced their own husbands. Uh, and it's a, a very beautiful midrash. And from this, um, the Tosfot um, said that the... Um, the store, this store, this story, this midrash, this allegorization of the apple um, comes from the midrash on the Song of Songs, and you should put in your haroset the fruits that appear in midrashim on the Song of Songs, the fruits that the children of that the people of Israel are compared to in the Song of Songs. So you get apples, you get nuts, you get 
dates, you get figs, you get pomegranates. Now, obviously, it was difficult over the ages to get all these ingredients. Um, they weren't always available everywhere. Um, when um, one of the Tosfists in London before the expulsion of the Jews from, from England in the 13th century says you should put pomegranates in your haroset, I think he's probably talking about a textual tradition rather than a food tradition. I think it's most unlikely that they managed to get hold of pomegranates in London in the 13th century. In fact, there's a a document which said that they went to buy 18 oranges and 200 pomegranates for the Queen of England at the time. And if it was something special, very, very special for the Queen, I think ordinary Jews are most unlikely to have been able to get hold of it. But it, it's there in, in the Tosfot. Um, but later on, um, it drops out and Ashkenazi um, Haroset today is almost exactly the same wherever you find Ashkenazi Jews. It doesn't matter where they come from. They're little bit, little changes, but you, you know, it's, I learned um, a little rhyme when I was a child. Apples, raisins, chopped up fine, cinnamon, nuts and sweet red wine. And that is the Ashkenazi Haroset. Svardi Haroset is completely different and different communities have different minhagim, have all sorts of different things. They do tend to be based on dates, but they put all sorts of other marvellous things in. Um, the ginger, sesame seed, which for Ashkenazim are, are sometimes considered to be kitniot and not allowed on Pesach. Um, the Persian Jews do use pomegranates. And to my mind, I mean, I my grandparents came from Lithuania and I have standard Ashkenazi haroset at home um, as my tradition, but I do think the Persian haroset's better. I think it's the best of all of them. Um, and there's a, they told me a wonderful story, some of the um, Jews from, mm, I can't remember, uh, uh, I think maybe Kurdish Jews, that on Simchat Torah, you know that the Sfaradim have their Sefer Torah in a wooden box uh, that's like a sort of tube, but it's got a flat top unlike the Ashkenazi Sifre Torah, which have handles at the top and 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 and, and, and um, they do have rimonim, pomegranates, but they um, but the Sfaradim put the most beautiful um, apples and pomegranates on top of the Sefer Torah on um, Simchat Torah, and then they take them and put them in cold storage and keep them to pest till Pesach, the ones that have been on the Sefer Torah. And then those are the, the, the um, fruit that they use to make their haroset with, which is, uh, I think, really lovely custom. I was also wondering about the whole tapuach as, 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 as citron. And, and, and well, the tapuach as, as citron, yeah, I, I, I think there's, um, I think, I, I think this is, 
uh, pilpul. <laughs> I think this is rabbis who are enjoying playing with things um, and not not thinking not thinking about about tradition so much but enjoying playing with the meanings of of words and if in one place it says that this wasn't really an apple it was an etrog it was a citron so in another place you can suggest it and then there's this absolutely wonderful comment which um I think it was a Satmara Rav who, who made it and he said well he said if you have a real apple tree as opposed to a, an etrog tree, there'd be more room for the women to, and their husbands and for the women to give birth under the, under a real apple tree than under an etrog tree because that comes very low to the ground and has lots of prickles on it. I think that's absolutely lovely. And I really liked that. And it wasn't strictly relevant, so I put it in the footnote. Um I I I don't I don't think anybody thought of etrogim um, in the Middle Ages when <clears throat> when they were talking about about apples. I think they talked they were really thinking about actual apples. The, um, an etrog was something very very hard to get hold of. I suppose you could have kept if you kept it from um, <clears throat> from Sukkot till um till Pesach it wouldn't be very edible so I, it seems to be most unlikely I I have looked into etrogim actually and, and the trade in them and how difficult it was sometimes communities had one etrog for the whole community and they had to you know <clears throat> give it to each person and as a present so that it would be his so that he could use it for the mitzvah um I, I think I, I I think certainly over the ages that they, they couldn't possibly have used etrogim. Um and this is just one of the, the games with words. Pesach is, is the Haggadah, the whole idea is full of these games with words. There are games with words over Haroset as well. There um the Ari talks about Haroset Even and Haroset Etz. An even, a stone, it doesn't mean a stone, it's a joke. Um, it's the initial letters of Apfel, Biren, Nusa. Apples, pears and nuts in, in German. And it is Ingbar and Zimmerind, ginger and cinnamon, because those were the ingredients of um, particularly German haroset. You, you actually got pictures in Haggadot where they write, where they show them peeling the pears and, 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 and the apples. And they have little rhymes saying, saying that they're preparing, they're preparing their haroset from apples, pears and, and um, nuts. Yeah. You, you mentioned previously that since the time this book was written in 2019 or published in 2019, that you've got a file for the second edition. Are there anything, any things you've discovered, any ideas you've come across that have made you fully rethink what you've written or overall they're just additions to what you've already written? 
Most of them are just a, a, um, additions, but I have rethought some of the stuff I wrote about the Ari. I've discovered new material, new material that I wasn't aware of, and I'm afraid I'm not not very key, not very. I'm a mitnud from a mitnugged family, right? Not a, from a Hasidic family, and I didn't really do good enough research on on Hasidut, and there are. Actually, some very interesting things there um, that 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 came up. That somebody was kind enough to write to me and, and send me a whole lot of sources. It was re really really wonderful that pe people actually bother to do things like that. I was just delighted. And we can learn about that. We'll do a second interview for the second edition. If if for the second edition, <laughs> right? Okay. So Susan, I've, I've taken up a lot of your time. I want to make sure that we can close off in, in a good way. What are you working on next? I'm working on a book on Talmudic food, food, all to, food generally in in the Talmudic literature, um, which is both Mishnah, Tosefta, uh, Midrashim, and both the Talmudim, and setting the food in Eretz Yisrael in its Greco-Roman setting and the food of the Babylonian Talmud I compare to there's cookery books of the Caliphs of Baghdad which are a little about the same time as the Gaonim and explain quite a lot of the, th of the food in the Babylonian Talmud that we you know people haven't worked out what what they are and uh, it's great. I, I'm really enjoying it. I look forward to reading that. And um, I'm getting hungry just thinking about it. So well, sounds... I, I, I have to finish writing it first. <laughs> All right. So when you finish writing it, I'll, I'll, I'd love to read it. Okay. Thank you very much. I really appreciate your time. This has been great. Thank you, Matthew. I, I was, it's, a while, it's, it's about time I started thinking about Haroset. It's nearly Pesach anyway. Exactly. Okay. Be well. We have been talking to Susan Weingarten, author of Harosid, A Taste of Jewish History, published by Toby Press in 2019. Happy reading, my friends.